0: Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. Um, This is a time where we emphasize, you know, the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, but in all reality, I've said this in my email that went out to many of you um, this week, every Sunday is a reminder of the resurrection. Every Sunday we meet on this day because Christ rose from the grave. So as we think about our church calendar and we think about Christmas and Easter, it is good that we remember the incarnation. We remember the crucifixion. We remember the the resurrection. Because without the incarnation, without the crucifixion, without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. Uh, There's no business in us gathering here. But we would do well to not remember these days and then feel like we've done our due, done our part. We would do well to constantly have the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection set before us. And every Sunday, we have that beautiful privilege to remember that this is the day Christ Jesus raised from, was raised up from the grave. So if you were with us last week, you'll recall that we were in Genesis chapter 29. We're not gonna be in Genesis today, but just bear with me for a few minutes. But we were there and we saw Jacob. He was tricked into marrying two wives, While Laban deceived Jacob, uh, we are reminded over and over throughout the book of Genesis that God's purposes will be fulfilled in spite of man's sinful ways. You see, God promised to multiply the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said their descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. But as we've been walking through Genesis, we're over halfway through the book, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their descendants are a far cry from being an innumerable multitude. And so in Genesis 29, we have Jacob who's 40 years old, has no children, or he's at least 40, has no children. And so we might ask this question when and how will this promise be fulfilled? Well, last week, Genesis 29, and then what we'll see next week helps us understand how that promise will be fulfilled. While scripture does not condone the practice, We see Jacob, he ends up with two wives and two maidservants. And each of these four women will bear children to Jacob. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we'll see Jacob going to Egypt and his family consists of 70 people. So we have this small group. We have Abraham, Isaac, they are are small families. And then all of a sudden, by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we have a, a people of 70. We have 70 people, more than 70. And then by the time we... As time passes, 400 years from then, when the people get out of Egypt, if we were in the book of Numbers, we would see there is finally an innumerable multitude. Well, innumerable is probably not the right word because they do number them, but it is a multitude of people that will continue to grow. And while the promise of a multitude of people is a major theme throughout the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis also keys in on one particular descendant who will come forth from this people, who will come forth from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's probably 13 years ago or so, but I remember sitting in a breakout session with Vodi Bakum teaching. And one thing he said that struck me and it still strikes me to this day, he said, Genesis is really a seed story. It's about the promised offspring. It's about the one who in Genesis 3.15 is promised will come forth from Eve who will be born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And then Genesis traces this serpent crusher, this one who will defeat the enemy of man. And as we think about this promised seed, he will be born from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see further revelation of who he will be in Genesis 12. God tells Abraham, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's not referring to in his people. We know that throughout the Old Testament, the Israelite nation did not bless the nations. It's referring to one who will come forth from them, who will bless the nations. So, this offspring, this descendant, singular, he will bless the nations, he will bring forth redemption to the nations. And so as we see in the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham out from among the nations, makes this promise to him, and then eventually he has a son, Isaac. But Isaac is not the one to bless the nations. And then Isaac has a couple of sons, and we know that his two sons certainly do not bless the nations. He has one son, Esau, who's impulsive, driven by carnal appetite while the other son's an opportunist, most assuredly belonging to the offspring of the evil one. This one, Jacob, he's a manipulator, deceives his father and his brother. He's like the serpent who sits back and just waits for the right time to strike. Yet it'll be through his descendants that this promised descendant will be born. Many generations later, promised descendant will be born from Jacob's offspring. Turn to Matthew 1. Just so we see this with our own eyes, many of you know this already. It's just striking to think how God will fulfill his promises in spite of man, in spite of man's sinfulness. So look at Matthew chapter 1. Once you get there, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. So this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And then in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, so not the same Jacob, who's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So where we've been in Genesis, we've seen this outworking of this promise, this promised one who will come many years later, and he will be born from Jacob's descendants. I mean, Jacob was a rascal deceived his father, his brother, and it will be through his offspring that Christ will be born. Fortunately, we know. That's why we we talk about the incarnation. He did not share the same, uh, the sin of Jacob. He was not born from Jacob's loins to that degree because he was conceived of Mary through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. So he did not He was not born with his sinful nature. Thank God that we don't have to rely upon men like Jacob for our salvation. That'd be like relying on one another for our salvation. So what we'll do today, we're going to take a break from Genesis. But I want to, I hope this will remind you as we walk through Genesis That ultimately, we're looking at the genealogy of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, and how God fulfilled his promise of redemption. So we're going to take a break from that. We're going to consider this one, this promised descendant, Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Philippians 2. You can go ahead and turn there. And we're going to consider the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. We will do this Rather quickly, based because of the, the content, we could spend many weeks um, talking about this. Um, I don't mean quickly in terms of the sermon today, but quickly in terms of how much is here to unpack. But I think what we will see as we look at this, as we will see how sweet and beautiful God's redemption is through Christ and how glorious the reigning Christ is today. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted on high, and he reigns. So I pray that you will see his glory this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, just to give us context. We're going to be in 5 through 11, but then I'll pray before we dig in. So let's look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then we'll pray. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you because Christ Jesus, because he has gone before you. He's gone before you on our behalf. He died. Yet he rose up from the grave. And now your spirit has shown light in our hearts that we might see Christ as the King of kings. And so we come before you now because of the risen Christ, the highly exalted one. And I pray that you might continue to show us his glory this morning. I pray that the Spirit would continue to shine light in our hearts this morning, I pray that from this pulpit and from pulpits across the nation and around the world, I pray that Christ will be magnified and glorified. I pray that strongholds will be broken through the preaching of the word of Christ. As we look around, oftentimes it looks like darkness is just filling our land. But we know that the light of lights is reigning. Help us to look to you through Christ our King by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be encouraged as we live in this land. Help us, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is often so weak. Deliver us from any evil way from the bondage that we so often enslave ourselves to in this world. Deliver us. Help us to see your glory, your beauty, your excellence. Help us to stop selling ourselves short and selling ourselves to that which leads to death. Oh, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word and hearts from which we will sing your praises. We love you, O oh God, because you have first loved us. We're humbled by your grace. We're humbled that you would call us to yourself. I know that you might call many more to yourself this very day through the preaching of your word. And I pray this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So earlier, before we sang the last two songs, we recited two questions from the Baptist Catechism. It was initially written in 1693. Um, It's been modernized a little bit. But we read those questions because it really helps us think about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ refers to his birth, his suffering, both in life and in death, So that includes his crucifixion and his burial. The exaltation of Christ refers to his resurrection, his ascension and his coronation. So receiving that crown. So in other words, Christ's humiliation refers to Christ's condition from his birth to his death, while his exaltation refers to his condition after the resurrection. And it's within this framework, humiliation, exaltation that we're going to consider Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Really in verses 5 through 8, we see humiliation. Really it's 7 and 8, but 5 and 6 help us get there and set up the humiliation. And then 9 through 11, we'll see Christ's exaltation. And just to connect this back to Jacob, if not for the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ Jesus, we would only read about Jacob in history books. And you know what that means. Most of you would never read about Jacob. Um, But because of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we can read books like Genesis and we must read these books because this is God's word to us. And what we see is the glory of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was promised long ago and who God has been God worked to bring him about. God worked to bring about this plan of redemption, that is Jesus being born to die. And then now that same Christ is reigning on high. And so we can read about his ancestors from a fleshly perspective. We can read about Jacob. We can read about Abraham. We can read about Isaac. And we ought to read about these men in light of who Jesus Christ is. And so we have much to learn throughout all of the scriptures because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So with that, the exulta- the humiliation, exaltation, that's our twofold framework here. So let's go ahead and dive in, beginning with verse 5. So Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is an imperative, a command, have this mind among yourselves, comes on the the hills of verses one through four, where Paul has just called the church to a life of humility and unity. Paul is calling the church to take interest in one another rather than solely looking to yourself. You know how that is. It's so easy to look to ourselves, to miss the, the, the person next to us who's in great need. So Paul's calling the church, get your minds off of yourself. I know you think about you, get your mind off of you. And now he's saying, look to Christ, look to him. Have this mind among you. And Paul is doing this. He's appealing to, to the church for unity, because there's most likely tension in the church. Verses one through four, imply that um, that there's tension. Chapter four, verse two, we see a couple of ladies who Paul encourages. He exhorts them to agree in the Lord. So there's some type of division, probably brewing, some kind of tension taking place. And so Paul calls the church to unity through humility. And to further expound upon this unity through humility that he's calling them to, he says, look to Christ, have this mind among yourselves, have the mind of Christ. He calls them in verse five to adopt the mindset of Christ. One commentator notes, the mindset of the Christian should be identical in purpose to Christ's mindset. We too must focus on the interest of others and direct our attention to the unity of the church. So Paul is telling the church to think this way among yourselves. And the way he's calling them to think is in line with Christ. And then in verses 6 through 11, he expounds upon this. Many believe that 6 through 11 is an early hymn, maybe written by Paul, or maybe that Paul took to use to expound upon what he's calling the church to. And in these verses, we see humiliation and exaltation. But before we really walk through that, I want you to remember the words of Christ. Think about him. He said this often. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled. Think about that. Who is the one that truly humbled himself? Jesus Christ. And he was exalted. And think about how how man seeks to exalt himself. Well, what we learn here, everyone will be humbled. Whether you bow today or you bow in the life to come, you will bow before Christ Jesus our Lord. So whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And Christ is the picture of humility followed by exaltation. So here in verse 6, we begin with the significance of Christ's humiliation. And we see his nature as God. And we read, who though he was in the form of God. So Christ Jesus, he was in the form of God. And while the ESV here translates it as he was in the form of God, this wasn't something that took place in the past and then now changes. It's not to be equated with something like, I was a child, but now I'm an adult. Now I'm no longer a child if I'm an adult. That's not what we have here. The word was is really more being, existence. So another way to translate this would be as this, being in the form of God. So Christ Jesus being in the form of God, this, this tells us something about him. He is in the form of God. He is God. He shares God's form, not just outward appearance, That would be a misunderstanding of this text because God does not have a body like man. God is a spirit. He's not flesh. So Jesus does not merely look like God. He is God. He shares the same essence with God. And to see this more fully, the rest of the verse says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So first of all, this does not mean that Christ was not equal with God. Well, Why do I say that? Because Jesus Christ is God. He has the same form, the same essence as we see in the first half of this verse. And because he is God, equality with God is not something to be grasped. It's not something he could obtain. The nature and essence of God belongs to him. The essence cannot be seized It cannot be grasped. I can't steal something that belongs to me. It cannot be gained. There's no getting it unless it belongs to you. To use a cultural illustration, probably a bad illustration, but I'll use it anyways because it makes sense here. If you're a man, you cannot obtain womanhood. You cannot obtain the essence of a woman if you're a man. Same goes for a woman. You cannot obtain the essence of a man. Same goes for a dog or a cat. A dog can't become a cat. A cat can't become a dog. You get the idea. Same thing with Jesus. He can't obtain godness because it's his already. He can't grasp it because it's his. It belongs to him. He cannot take the nature of God upon himself because he is God. One cannot become God. There are false religions out there that say we will become gods. You cannot become God. Jesus did not become God. Jesus is the eternal God. John 1.1, 1, 1, he was in the beginning with God. He is God. And just think about Jesus as he's presented to us throughout the gospels. He was frequently accused of blasphemy. Why? Think about what he would tell the religious leaders. He would tell them that he is God. One example is found in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking with the Jews. He's accusing them of, uh, I'm sorry, they're accusing him of having a demon. And they're doing this because of the outrageous claim that he's making. And when he tells them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, they said, You're not 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In John 8, Jesus refers to himself the same way that God refers to himself whenever Moses meets him in Exodus 3. When Moses asks for God's name, God says, I am who I am. God answers this way because God is. God has no beginning, no middle, no end. God is is. And if you don't believe that that's what Jesus was telling the, 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 these Jews, go to chapter 8 and look at their response. They sought to stone him to death because they thought he was a blasphemer, saying that he is God. And not only do we have Jesus declaring himself to be God, but during his earthly ministry, we also see him exercising power and authority that only God can exercise. He exercised authority over the winds and the waves. He brought the dead back to life. He healed the lame and the sick. He knew what was in the heart of man. And he had the power to forgive sin. Bring that to your attention just to help you understand what Paul is teaching here. Jesus, who is God, cannot become God. He cannot seize Godness because he is God. It is his. He is equal with God because he is God. But then we see in in, in verse 7 something so shocking. God emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus emptied himself. This little phrase has caused quite the stir over the Decades and years and centuries. Many attempts have been made to understand what it means by Jesus emptying himself. And on the extreme side, some would say that he emptied himself of his deity, that he emptied himself of his essence as God. But that cannot be true. It's not consistent with what the Gospels teach. I mean, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was, I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am God. This isn't something, Godness is not something he could get rid of. God can't say, I'm going to stop being God today. Well, you wouldn't know because God upholds the world by by his right arm. So if God could do that, we wouldn't be here to to see it. But God cannot become God. he cannot ungod himself. He cannot get rid of his godness. It's not something he could get rid of. And so Jesus did not give up his divine essence. You see, when we assume that by emptying himself, that he emptied himself of his deity, we're actually imposing an interpretation on the text that's just not there. I encourage you to always look to the text when you have questions When you see things, what does that mean? What does it mean by he emptied himself? Keep reading. Keep reading the text. Because in what follows, we learn what Paul would have us understand about him emptying himself. Following this verb of emptying, he emptied himself. We have two participles. I I realize some of you haven't been in English grammar in a while. So I'm going to give you a a high-level overview. A verb. A verb. What is it? A verb is a word that has a state that describes an action or a state of being. He emptied himself. That's the verb. This verb is modified by two participles. Present participle in English takes on ing. So ing is on the end of it. The two participles here, taking and being. So participles, a verbal adjective. An adjective modifies. So here, these two participles, they modify the main verb which is to empty. So I bring that to your attention because these two participles here tell us what is meant by emptying himself. Okay, he emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? Well, he takes on the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of men. That's what it means whenever Paul is saying he emptied himself. He takes on something and he's, he, he's born, He's done. He, he does something, he's being born in the likeness of men. It's likely these verses do not exhaust everything that can be known about what it means when we read the words Christ emptied himself. There's so much mystery when it comes to the incarnation because we're talking about the God-man and there's only been one. No one else has become incarnate in this way. This is the only time in history where divinity becomes incarnate. So how does this happen? What does Paul teach us? He emptied himself. Well, how? Well, he takes the form of a servant. What does this mean? Well, back in verse six, he was in the form of God. Now he takes the form of a servant. So we have a contrast. The contrast to being in the form of God, he takes the form of a servant. William Hendrickson, some of you like his commentaries. He says, he, the master of all, becomes servant of all, and yet he remains master. Jesus did not exchange deity for servanthood. Nowhere does this passage teach that. This passage teaches us that he assumed the form of a servant. He took upon himself the form of a servant, whereas deity could not be grasped. It's not something he could go take for himself because it already belonged to him, he does take something else to himself. He assumes the form of a lowly servant. Remember what Jesus tells his disciples. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A radical statement, because we're talking about God. The one who ought to be served with everything comes to be served. This is radical humility, the humiliation of Christ, the one who is above all taking on the form of the lowest of the low, the form of a servant. So that's the first thing we see when we read, he emptied himself, the first participle by taking the form of a servant. The second participle here, modifying that verb, being born in the likeness of men. This is not saying that Jesus merely looked like a man. This is stating that the one who is God becomes man. Hebrews 2, we read that the Son of God partook of our flesh and blood. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In Christ Jesus, God became man. He did not forfeit deity, He did not stop being God, for God cannot stop being God. Rather, he assumed human flesh and truly became man. Irenaeus, he lived during the second century, a long time ago. But he wrote these words, he took up man into himself. The invisible becoming visible. The incomprehensible being made comprehensible. The impassable becoming capable of suffering. It's that last part of this verse that I want to key in on, the impassable. So the one who cannot suffer becomes capable of suffering. And we see how he became man, born in our likeness. And then in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself. Well, how does he humble himself? by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just think about that. The immutable God, the one who cannot change, assumes mutable flesh, that he might become obedient. The infinite God who has no limits takes upon himself finite flesh that he might die in the flesh. And if that's not shocking enough, we learn from the scriptures that he did this willingly. He was not coerced to take on human flesh. He was not coerced to die a sinner's death. He submitted to the Father's will and his mission. He takes upon human flesh for himself. He considered his own, his own who were destitute and he humbled himself on behalf of his own. God who owes man nothing became a lowly servant on our behalf. And it's in that light that Paul reminds the Philippian church to humble yourselves, look out for the interest of others, And when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and we think about his humiliation, it makes our disagreements with one another seem pretty petty. Jesus willingly took upon himself, took our form upon himself. He subjected himself to suffering and shame. Yet here we are and we hold on to grudges against one another. Someone says something to me I don't like and I can't get over it? I mean, how highly do we think of ourselves? How highly do you think of yourself? How significant do you think you are? How significant do I think I am? When we're tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, let us remember Christ. Let us consider him. Let us consider his humiliation. Remember, infinite became finite, not because of any lack in himself. Jesus didn't need to find out what it was like to be a man. There is no lack in God. There's not something God needed and said, you know what? I haven't done that, so I need to go do it. That is not what God did. Bobby Jameson says this, he became incarnate, not because he lacked anything, but because we lacked everything. So that's the first section of our passage. The humiliation of Christ Jesus. We go through that, we went through that because Paul gives that to us, but also to understand the exaltation. Without humiliation, we don't have the exaltation here. And so we look at verse nine and we see the word therefore. So because of what we've just seen, because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, doing that which appears Foolish in terms of human wisdom and power. Yet as we see here, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Notice the text does not say that he commemorated him or he noticed him. The text says he was highly exalted. To be exalted is to be elevated, to be given honor. And as we see here, he was highly exalted exalted. He's been given the highest honor. He's been raised to the loftiest height, the highest height. And you see, this right here implies the resurrection. If he had not been raised up, he would not be exalted, for he would not be alive. Now, he might have been commemorated or memorialized, but he would not be exalted if not for the resurrection. But Jesus was raised up from the grave and he was exalted on high at Pentecost. This is what Peter preached. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He was exalted because he now has been raised up from the grave, no resurrection, no exaltation. So Jesus, raised up from the grave because the grave could not hold him. We think about the resurrection. Our sin was only imputed to him when he dies on that cross. Jesus did not become a sinner. He's not a sinner. Therefore, death had no hold on him. But not only is he raised up from the grave, but after a 40-day period here on earth, Christ Jesus was taken up into heaven. In Acts 1, we see the disciples. Jesus is talking with them. And after he finished speaking to them, we read, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Where was he taken? He was taken to the right hand of the Father. He was raised up from the grave. He ascended into heaven and he was given the eternal throne, promised to David. In Hebrews 1, we read, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, becoming as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And it's this name that he inherited that verse 9, the last part of it, focuses on. So therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Well, what is this name that God bestowed upon him? Is it Jesus? Is it Lord? Well, I'm inclined to see this as the name of God, which is rendered in the Greek as kurios, which we typically translate as Lord. And that's the confession that we see in verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Christ, that Jesus Christ, is Lord, For in the book of Revelation in chapter 17, we would see that he is Lord of lords. He's the Lord of lords. He's the highest of the high. And to be Lord is to be the sovereign one. To be Lord is the one who, the Lord of lords is to have absolute dominion. To be Lord of lords is the one to whom all others are subject. So he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's been highly exalted and he has been bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And then in verse 10, we see the resulting effects of this, of this coronation of his receiving the crown, of him becoming Lord of all. We see, we read right here, he's been highly exalted. God has bestowed on him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I mean, just think about the magnitude of this. Everyone will bow their knee to him. This encompasses those who are alive as well as those who are dead, believer, non-believer alike. Everyone will bow their knee to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords. And not only will every knee bow, but as we read in verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, who willingly subjected himself to suffering, to persecution, and to a cruel death on the cross, he's been lifted up to the highest of heights. He's been exalted on high. The one who truly humbled himself has been exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we could stop here. We could make application and we could go home. But I want to Work out your theological muscles. I want to stretch you a little bit. I want to ask you a question. We're going to wrestle with this question. What was his status before the incarnation if he becomes Lord after his resurrection? Simply put, was he Lord or does he become Lord? In the first half of this passage, we see that Jesus is God since he's God, doesn't he already possess the name that's above every name? Since he's God, doesn't he already possess all rule and authority? Besides, isn't Jesus called Lord prior to his exaltation? If we were in Luke's gospel, we would see Elizabeth refer to Mary as the mother of my Lord. If Elizabeth doesn't convince you, what about the angels who appeared to the shepherds? What do they say? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord? So he was referred to as Lord even before his exaltation. So is Jesus Lord, or does he become Lord? For as Peter says on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord And Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified, is he Lord or does he become Lord? So as we think about this question, we have to first remember Jesus is like none other. Christ Jesus is both God and man. And when he became man, he didn't stop being God. He did not become any less God for he is truly God. He added something, he assumed something, he assumed human flesh. He doesn't just look like a human, he doesn't just put a human suit on, he truly became a man. He became like us in every way, every way he became like you. He got hungry, he got tired, but yet the one thing he didn't become like you in is in your sin. Became like us in every respect yet without sin. And now that he's been raised up, as he's been exalted on high, He's not stopped being man. He didn't stop being God when he was born, and neither did he stop being man when he ascended on high. Jesus, the glorified Son of God, is man and he is God. The definition of Chalcedon, it so wonderfully summarizes this, is from the fifth century, it says, He is one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Therefore, we must remember when we speak about Christ, we must remember the whole Christ. He does not forfeit one nature to gain the other. He does not go back and forth between natures. He is one Christ who is God and who is man. This is a mystery we cannot solve. I was listening to someone who said, we can only state this mystery. We can't solve it because the mystery of Christ is profound. And I hope you see the glory in that. I hope you don't say, I've got it figured out. I understand how God could be man. You will lose the awe and the wonder of God, the wonder of Christ the day you believe that. And you will be a liar. Because you're talking about the infinite becoming finite, yet remaining infinite. He is the God-man. There's never been another like him. He is unique. So as we seek to answer this question, is Jesus Lord or does he become Lord? We must first remember he is like no other for he possesses two natures, deity and humanity. And with that foundation, I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer, and then we're going to walk through it. With that foundation, we can say that what formerly, formerly belonged to his deity has now been given to his humanity. Remember, scripture speaks about Jesus in a twofold manner. As such, when he becomes incarnate, there are aspects of his humanity that do not belong to his deity, and there are aspects of his deity that do not belong to his humanity. Remember, infinite becomes finite, but remains infinite. God is infinite. Man is finite. God cannot die. Man can and does die. Immutable becomes I'm sorry, immutable becomes mutable, yet remains immutable. God is immutable. He changes not. Man is mutable. We change. sometimes for the good, sometimes for the worse. So when scripture speaks about Christ Jesus, some things are attributed to the divine nature. Others are attributed to the human nature. For instance, when we read about his birth and we read about him becoming hungry and tired, these are things that belong to his human nature. For God cannot be born. God cannot get, become hungry. He does not grow weary. I mean, imagine believing in a God who hungers and who tires. You'd have to schedule appointments with him. And hope he's not busy. Hope that he's not eating or sleeping. It's not a a God that you want to worship and serve. That's man. But with Christ, we see that he was born. He did hunger. He did grow weary. He was tempted in every way, yet remained without sin. Therefore, you have a perfect high priest who can truly relate to you. On the other hand, when we read about Jesus knowing all things, scripture is clearly talking about his divine nature for man is not all knowing. We learn that as we get older, right? You think you know it all. And then as you get older every decade, it seems like I knew less than I did then. And then you get to the end and you're like, I don't know anything. (laughs) I I assume that's what 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 I've heard. When Jesus says he has authority to lay down his life, And the authority to take it up again. Scripture is clearly speaking to the divine nature because man does not have the power or the authority to raise himself from the dead. But God does. Because he has power and authority over life and death. So when we think about this in reference to Jesus becoming Lord, we can say in his divine nature, he was already Lord. But in his human nature, he became Lord. Psalm 110 is helpful. David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the same reference that Peter makes on the day of Pentecost. Peter says that God has made him both Lord and Christ. But when we consider David's words in Psalm 110, we see the Lord saying to David's Lord. God is speaking to the Son who is Lord, and he's making him Lord as he sets him on the throne, at his right hand. So Christ Jesus has been highly exalted. The God-man is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, flesh and blood at the right hand of the Father. He's truly man. He did not lose his divine nature. As one author helpfully surmises, at his ascension and enthronement, Jesus received as man, what he always possessed as God. Jesus began to do as man what he had always done as God, reign over all. And that's the picture we have with Philippians 2. We have the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised offspring, who though he was in the form of God, took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death and now he has been highly exalted and God bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of all, both in his deity and in his humanity. This is a glorious mystery, immortal flesh, Glorified dust now sits at the right hand of the Father. And upon him is bestowed the name that is above every name. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. So what do we take away from this? What do we take away from the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ? So beginning with his humiliation, Christ Jesus, the immortal one, takes on mortal flesh willingly that he might die on a tree. This is humility to a T. The one who truly transcends all, all his creation is truly beneath him. Yet he willingly subjects himself to death by crucifixion. This is infinitely greater than the billionaire becoming poor. This is the one whose riches are infinite, subjecting himself to futility. So, what about you? Are you seeking to humble yourself, or are you seeking to exalt yourself? Do you want the place of prominence? Do you want to be the center of attention? Do you seek to be the talk of the town? Do you seek to build yourself up to be better or look better in other people's eyes than you really are? For the non-believer here, Christ's humility is the greatest act of love you could ever imagine. The very God whom you have offended, whom you have sinned against, he died on the cross for the sins of his own and you will be one of his you humble yourself and come to him with nothing to offer. Stop trying to prop yourself up. Stop trying to live as though you're better than others, or as though you're righteous enough for God and for heaven. Humble yourself before the Lord. Be like the sinner who goes into the temple, can't even look to heaven and says, "Be merciful to me, a sinner." For the Christian. The application of Christ's humiliation is right here on the text of Philippians 2. Strive for unity. Love the brethren. Mortify selfish ambition and conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. And look out for the best interest of others. Simply put, seek to do good to one another just as Christ Jesus has done so much good to you. He came as a lowly servant. But oftentimes, we don't want to inconvenience ourselves to help a brother or sister in need. If you're being tempted to think that way, just think about how inconvenient Christ's humiliation was. He subjected himself willingly to be a sacrificial lamb. And you don't want to take the time out of your day to help someone in need? A brother or sister in need? Now let's think in light of the exaltation. Christ Jesus was raised up from the grave, not merely to live here on earth. Yes, he walked on earth for 40 days, but then he ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. He is reigning now. So for the non-believer, will you bow to him who sits on his glorious throne? Will you bow in this age? Because you will bow in the age to come. You will bow before his majesty. But will you bow now or then? Will you lay down your weapons of rebellion and surrender to his reign? For as we see in Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Every image bearer which is every one of you created in God's image, will you bow? Because you will bow at some point. Some will bow in submission and honor while others will bow as his footstool. So along with Peter, I exhort you to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Humble yourselves before him and he will raise you up with Christ. You'll be united to Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you will reign with him. And know, know know this. If you are in Christ, there's nothing to fear in this life. Not even death. We read earlier from Romans 8. If we look through that whole passage, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. He's overcome the grave and he reigns over all. So look to him, behold his glory, praise his holy name, live in light of your resurrected life in him. How do you do that? Well, I encourage you to behold Christ Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures. Marvel at who he is. Worship him. Do as he commands. And find a mature believer. Ask them how to live the Christian life. Find someone who understands the freedom that we have as slaves of Christ. That might sound like an oxymoron, a paradox there. The freedom we have as slaves of Christ. For if you are in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You've been made alive in him. He's conquered sin's stranglehold in your life. Sin and death no longer have dominion over you. Look to him and live in light of his glorious reign. And for those who are professing Christ as Lord, let me ask you this, are you living in light of his glorious reign. Maybe you're the one who only gives lip service. You say he's king, yet you live as though you're king. You do what you think is best and you actually disregard the one you say is king. Oh, brothers and sisters, if this is you, repent. Turn back to him who is the lover of your soul return to him who lives forevermore. Some of you may have become discouraged with the gospel. Maybe you've lost confidence in the gospel because you're not seeing the fruit you would like to see. But I tell you this, the king of kings, his word will not return void. It will accomplish the the purpose for which he sent it. So proclaim the gospel with confidence. Proclaim the gospel with confidence to your children, to your family members, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, and to all who you have an opportunity to do so, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The risen Christ is Lord of lords, and he's given this message for you to proclaim, as I conclude this sermon, let me exhort you all this way. Look to Christ. Keep looking to Him. For some, I call you to come to Christ for the very first time. For others, I call you to endure in Him. And for others, I call you to come back to Him. For you have the appearance of being alive, but you've become entangled by sin's deadly web this is you, remember the risen Lord. Remember that Christ Jesus, he's been raised up from the grave. He is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. And by his word, he conquers conquers strongholds. Sin will not conquer the Christian. Christ will conquer the sin in the life of the Christian. Your only hope is Christ Jesus who died yet lives forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that our words, my humble attempt to expound upon your word, my feeble attempt, I should say, I pray that you, O God, through Christ, by your spirit, would speak life to those who are alive, bring death to those who are dead. But I pray that you would call those who are dead to life. I pray that your word would be a fragrance, a sweet fragrance to the believer. We'd rejoice as we consider Christ, not only in his humiliation, but in his exalted reign. I pray that we would say hallelujah. Praise the Lord we would see and hear of the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation of Christ, and we would have a confidence, not in ourselves, but a confidence in the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We would stand, stand fast to the end. I pray that we would have a boldness to come before you because we know that through Christ we now have access to your throne, to, the, to our heavenly Father. and We know that you care for us in sending your Son to die for us and now raising us up with him. Help us to understand the height, the depth of your love and what it means to truly be united to Christ. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name.